Good morning. A reading from Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and verse 31. Then God, then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, sister. We are starting our new four-week series on cross-cultural foundations in line with our vision, our theme for this ministry year, and as we're going to keep on emphasizing, we really want community engagement, and so in order to foster that and to encourage that, here are two things we're going to be doing, not, not only this sermon here, this sermon series, but we're actually going to be discussing each of these sermons in our life groups. So rather than doing a separate Bible study, we're going to try to digest, process, and discuss what is being taught in the pulpit each Sunday morning in our life groups. And so more encouragement to you to join a group and process in community. Secondly, you don't even need to wait that long. Right away, each Sunday, right after the sermon, we're going to have a time of Q&A questions and answers. And so you can go ahead and be thinking about questions you might want to raise your hand and ask, or if you prefer, you can use the QR code that you'll find in your bulletin and later on on the slide for Q&A, and you can submit your question by Google form as well, and we'll be sure to consider those as well. Because your feedback, your engagement, your questions, your growth, ours together, is what we're after, not just going through the motions, but growing in cross-cultural maturity. So that's our goal. That's what we want. So here we go, our first installment. But first, let's pause and pray. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for this time, and we're asking that you would bless your word, that you would send your Holy Spirit and make your word powerful in our lives. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to grow in wisdom. Help us to learn. Release any resistances we might have. Make this journey a joy and come, above all things, glorify yourself in us, even in the way in which we receive from you. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you. We praise you. We welcome you. In Christ's name, amen. The Bible reveals to us a grand drama, a four-part, four-chapter story of the world, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, 
a storyline, a plot line of the world that goes something like this. God made all things, and he made them good. And yet those things in this world became corrupt and fallen by sin, as sin and evil entered the world. And so Christ came to redeem and rescue us and all things, and one day he will return again to make all things new. Four chapters, one big story. Today, we're starting this new four-week series on cross-cultural foundations where we're exploring the question, what does Scripture teach us about gathering an ethnically mixed people into reconciled relationships? And we're going to approach it according to the Bible's four-chapter framework. The story in four chapters. Chapter one, the way cross-cultural life ought to be, because it's how God made us, different and together. Chapter 2, the way cross-cultural life isn't presently what it ought to be, because sin has distorted our world and our relationships. Chapter 3, the way cross-cultural life can be now in Jesus who brings healing and justice and shalom. And finally, chapter 4, the way cross-cultural life will be one day when Jesus returns and all relationships are made right. So we're going to be following that plot line, that storyline, and gleaning some practical wisdom and insight, God willing, from God's Word. And today we're starting at the beginning. Ought the way it ought to be. And I bring you this thesis, that cross-cultural life is part of God's original purpose and design for us. We're looking today at a brief part of Genesis chapter 1, Scripture's account of the beginning of everything. And in verse 28, it mentions there this narrative of the sixth and final day of the creation story. God makes all living creatures, the birds in the air, the fish in the water, the animals on the land, and now we're told he made the climax and crown of his creation, namely, human beings, you and me. And here, the Bible makes a stunning claim. All people have been made, created to be God's image. In verse 26, we're told, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. Verse 27, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now listen, God didn't make clones. He made people with variety and difference. Uh, We hear that even in the genderedness of humanity, male and female, he created them. But cutting across these differences, God made every human being in his image. And you say, well, what does that mean? That sounds like coded language to me. That means that we are, human beings are, a partial and imperfect yet true reflection in this world of God's nature and his beauty. In our faces, we get a glimpse 
of the very face of God. Now, I have in my hand, pulling it out of my pocket right here, a little piece of glass that you might recognize. A piece of glass commonly known as a prism. Now, what does a prism do? Whether if you happen to have one, you've seen one, or you're in your class at school and you're learning about one. But as you may know, if I were to shine a beam of light through this prism, this piece of glass would bend that light and then reveal something that maybe you otherwise couldn't see, and that is almost a hidden rainbow of colors inside of that light. Red and orange and yellow and green and blue and indigo and, and, and violet. I, I, did I get them? Roy, Roy G. Biv, right? All the colors spread out before us because that's what prisms do. That's what a prism does. It makes visible what's invisible. A, a, a prism reveals the, the hidden colors of light It unleashes the radiance and the beauty of the light. You see, beloved, God is light, and we are his prisms, reflecting his his beauty, his, his glory, revealing his invisible colors, in fact. Truth be told, we're actually more like cracked prisms because of sin and selfishness that have messed up our hearts and our relationships, broken pieces of glass, we don't shine God's light perfectly, but beloved, we do shine. We are the image of God. Now, even with just this one super robust concept that we find in the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, there are some incredibly important implications for cross-cultural community that we need to reckon with, and I want to share just three of them, three lessons. And here's the first lesson. You're glowing. Turn to your neighbor and say to them, you're glowing. All right, you are glowing. Now, I know that that is an expression that oftentimes these days might be reserved for people that are women that are pregnant, perhaps, or people that are beaming with pride. Maybe you're not used to saying this. Some of you brothers might need to get used to hearing or saying you're glowing. But listen, listen, whatever your ethnic or cultural background, Asian or black or brown or, or white, you are God's image, God's prism. God's glorious light is radiating from your pores, whether you recognize it or not. Some of us desperately need to be reminded of this. Maybe you're discouraged You know the facts, everything I've said, you're like, of course that's true, but maybe you can't shake the feelings. Because some of us have been showered with lies, or someone's been telling you that there's something wrong with you simply because you're different. You may have seen a a video that went viral a, a few years ago. 
It's of a sweet little black girl named Ariana, maybe three or four years old. She's having her braids done with a hairdresser, and she catches a glimpse of herself, as you can see in the video. She catches a glimpse of herself in the phone that's being a, a live stream, and she says almost spontaneously, I I'm so ugly. The hairstylist, who is also black, is just taken aback, and she immediately leans in, and then gently but passionately, she almost pleads with this young girl, don't say that. Don't say that. You're so pretty. When you, you look at yourself, you're supposed to say, I'm so pretty. You are too cute. And by this point, little Ariana is just in tears, crying in the shoulder of this young woman who continues to, to console and to, to strengthen this little girl, this little image bearer. Do you hear me? You've got the prettiest little dimples. How many people got two dimples? You have this beautiful chocolate skin. Black is beautiful and don't nobody ever tell you. You are gorgeous. When I first saw that clip, I cried. It's Millions of people also did as they watched this clip, not just because of the heartbreaking experience of this young girl and of the valiant courage and love and compassion of this grown-up speaking into this young girl's life, but I also cried, I think, because I knew, you know, so many of us are that little four-year-old inside, even today. And we need we need a, a hairstylist prophetess to speak truth and love, healing truth into our souls. Beloved sister, beloved brother, you need to hear the voice of God. You are radiant in glory. You are scintillating with beauty. You are royalty. Don't you know that verse there speaking about the ways in which people are called to rule over all of creation? That's royal language there. You are royalty. You are strong in dignity. You are loved by God and precious in his sight. And listen to me, not regardless of your differences, but because of them. We got to stop thinking that the only way we see glory in our reflection is by setting aside those peculiarities. It's in those things that we see the very image of God. Your wonderfully brown-toned or olive-toned face, you know what? You look a little bit like God. You and your accented way of speaking, don't you know you sound a little bit like God? And because our times in this day and age where white brothers and sisters too are sinfully demonized, it's important to say, yeah, you, your dazzling blend of German, Irish, and Pennsylvanian Quaker ancestry, yes, you image God. And you need to know that even though we're looking at the beginning of the story, we'll get to the end of the story in a couple weeks, but let's jump forward just for a second to see that even in heaven, when all things are perfected, your difference 
your ethnic, cultural, you difference will not be erased, but rather enhanced. As we see in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, a vision of a great multitude that no one could count, again, in heaven from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. You will be more fully you, not less. Yes, foremost, a worshiper of Christ, but also a Christ follower that still is beautifully Ghanaian, Korean, Dominican, and whatever it is that you presently identify yourselves as, just like verse 28 tells us, God surveys all that he has made. God sees you and he declares you to be what? Very good. Very good in the sight of God. Beloved, you're glowing. If the first lesson is you're glowing, here's the second you're ethnic. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're ethnic. I know a little awkward this one, you're ethnic. And I know this too sounds funny because we usually use the word ethnic to refer to things that we consider, what? Foreign. And so, quote-unquote, ethnic restaurants are the ones that cook with oyster sauce or coriander rather than with ketchup. And if you're looking for Goya black beans at Safeway, you better head to the aisle labeled what? Ethnic foods. I suppose what you'll find in the rest of the aisle, all the other aisles, is n normal foods. Listen, but the Bible tells us something different. That every single person, without exception, is deeply shaped and influenced. Every person deeply shaped and influenced by some culture or cultures. Every person represents a rich mix of customs and values and behaviors. In other words, everyone is ethnic. Again, Genesis 1 leads us in this direction. In verse 28, God tells his image bearers, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Now, theologians look at this verse, and they've called this the cultural mandate. And this is more than just a call to bear children. It's a commission to spread out across the world and to fill the world with artifacts of God's image, artifacts that prism, as it were, prism God's light. So here's an invitation to take the raw materials of the earth and to create food and music and rituals and ways of making meaning in the world. In other words, this is a call to make culture, to multiply, to diversify, and to create you see, and that is exactly what's happened throughout the course of human history around the world. People spreading out to all corners of the planet, forming communities and creating culture. And now the world is filled with image-bearing artifacts of culture. We're surrounded by cultures, unavoidably so. And Genesis 1 tells us that this is according to God's plan 
in God's design. Here's the great implication of this point. Every one of us inhabits culture. Every one of us embodies and represents a culture or cultures. Every one of us is formed and influenced by culture. No one is free of it. Surprise, you're ethnic. You're ethnic. And let me be clear, when we're talking about culture, we're not just talking about the obvious things like language and food and music and clothing. A lot of people in D.C. think, oh, I'm so multicultural. I love salsa dancing and Thai food's my favorite. And can I tell you about some of the phrases that I learned on Rosetta Stone lately? I'm cultural. We're also talking about the underneath the surface thing. That dimension of culture, attitudes, values, patterns of behavior includes ideas around friendship, our concept of beauty. It touches on the way we work and the way we parent. Some cultures, you might know, are are more individual-oriented. You really celebrate and focus on personal achievements and choices. That's how you identify yourself. Other cultures are different. They're more collective, group-oriented, where your family or your community's choices and mistakes are more defining to you. Some cultures emphasize equality, where a person even feels perfectly free and able to challenge their superiors. Maybe that describes some of you. Other cultures are quite different. They're more hierarchical, where people in those places are more hesitant to challenge authority. Uh, Some cultures communicate directly. They're very frank and therefore open to conflict. Let me just say what I think, come what may. Other cultures are more indirect, conflict-avoidant, more concerned with feelings and how things are said, not just the facts that are communicated. Where are you in this spectrum, in this rich mix of cultural influences? There was a time a number of years ago where I, as a pastor, was walking with two members of the church a white brother and a Latino brother, who at one point were fairly close friends and yet eventually became a a little bit tension-filled in their relationship. And I wanted to help sort of referee this conflict and sort through what had happened to their relationship. Well, apparently they had decided that they would meet together on occasion to pray, to talk, to be together. Of course, life in D.C. is such that setting aside time like that can often mean sacrifice, and so that was something they wanted to do, though, in brotherly love. But apparently those meetings were hard to work out. The Latino brother was showing up late or sometimes not at all. And this white brother was just deeply offended. And so we talked it out. And he said to me, this white brother, I I, I don't know if this relationship is tenable. And I said, why? He said, well, because he offended me, maybe even hurt me. I say, why? Because he doesn't respect me. And I said, well, how do you know that he doesn't respect you? He said, because he always shows up late. And what this brother didn't seem to understand was how we relate to time. Whether you feel the pressure to be punctual to your time commitments, or whether time is just sort of a 
general guideline is a thing of culture. One may not be right or wrong depending on the community. The most important thing is that we're aware of that and talking through that. In fact, I came across this information recently thinking about the ways in which culture relates to time. There was a study that was done around different cultures comparing their respective understandings of lateness, the concept of lateness. And I have in front of me here a quick chart that sort of compares the Yapese people, who, who are a people in the Micronesia region, so the South Pacific, Latin Americans, and North Americans, and how long it takes uh, for lateness to be excused. You know, you're a little bit late and you get a little grace period. What's that grace period? And then the middle column here describes where does, when does tension start to form? You're, 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 you're starting to feel like, ah, uh, this person. And then lastly, when does it become just full-blown hostility? Just bad. Okay, so in the Yapese culture, lateness is skewed, that grace period, up to two hours. Two hours, right? I mean, time, guidelines, right? Rough sketch, right? No hurry. And tension... However, it does build. It does, you know, they're not, not caring about time, but tension begins to build when? At the three-hour mark. Three hours, and then hostility settles in, you know, when it's like, this is wrong, you know, this is not good, four hours. Okay, compare that to people from North America. What, what is North American culture? No, 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 let me back up. Latin America. The middle culture, right? So in Latin American cultures, according to this grid, lateness is excused up to half an hour. Half an hour. Now, tension begins to build within one hour, and hostility settles in at the two-hour mark. But North American cultures, what do you think those numbers sound like? Lateness is excused five minutes. Five-minute grace period before you're checking your watch and you're like, Tension starts to build within 15 minutes, and hostility settles in, gets triggered at half an hour. Guess what? Latin American brother I'm talking about here, he was showing up half an hour to 45 minutes late. And therefore, this brother, yes, born and raised in a North American setting, concludes for him, without a shadow of a doubt, he doesn't respect me. How dare he? Now, my point is not to bash the brother. It can be hard to see this. The point is actually they need to talk and engage, but this is a crucial thing. Sometimes we can be so blind to the ways that our culture shapes who we are and how we behave. And so our conversation actually sounded like this after that point as we started noticing this. Hey, brother, the white brother, can you... Uh, imagine or start to get your mind around the possibility that this other brother doesn't disrespect you, but just relates to time a little bit differently. He's late. Maybe he could do a little bit better, but it's not because he doesn't respect you. And you, brother, over here, can, can you understand that the way that this brother feels about this is time matters to him. So in love, can you consider that as well on your side of things? Can you meet him a little bit more in the middle in terms of how you are relating to time for the sake of this relationship. See, what we normally do is we just assume, well, what I do is what everyone does or what most people do, so therefore it must be right, and it's always couched in terms of right and wrong, isn't it? And in this country, 
that often means the majority culture or white people in this country can tend to actually not see the way in which that cultural lens might not fit or be different from other cultural lenses. But let me also be clear. This is true of minorities too. You too can be blind to how much of your behaviors or attitudes or your values are in fact cultural and not just the way it is. You see, it's really, really important here as we're trying to grow and be in a blended community together, just because you're a person of color doesn't mean that you automatically have cross-cultural skills. Every single one of us has a lot to learn. And what we need to learn is that most cross-cultural hurt and breakdown in relationships happen at this deeper unconscious level where people aren't even aware of why they feel the feelings they feel and why they react the way they do. Uh, Professor Sung Chan Ra has written helpfully these words, to be interculturally sensitive, we need to examine the internal instinctual parts of our own culture. This means revealing unconscious values and thought patterns so that we will not simply react from our own cultural instinct. So here's the key question. This is the big question that I want to lay out before you. Who are you? What are the dominant cultural influences in your life? And have you learned to identify the way in which they shape your relationships, your assumptions, your behavior? Can you actually describe your own cultural conditioning? Maybe some of you have never actually done that exercise or gone through that learning process. Some of you, this might be more intuitive because you're reminded on a daily basis that you don't fit in or that you're different or that you operate with a different lens, negotiating with different cultures as you move in and out of different worlds. But all of us needs to learn as part of our Christian, yes, Christian cross-cultural discipleship, understanding better what cultural values affect how I behave and communicate with others. Because when we don't do this, we're left with immense blind spots and potential for conflict, even hostility over something as small or not small as punctuality at a meeting or an appointment or lack thereof. You see, when we don't know how to see ourselves, we start to just take cultural differences and we start to treat them as absolute rights and wrongs. In fact, what Christians often do is you take what's most natural to you and then you slap on a Bible verse and you call it biblical. In fact, when it's cultural. Or another reason why we need to learn to see ourselves rightly is because we then start to interpret other people's based upon our own cultural lens. Like this brother, he must disrespect me. Why? Because that's what it would be for me if I did the same to him. We overinterpret or wrongly interpret others based upon our own cultural lens and context. Here's another thing that happens when we don't learn to see ourselves. We tend in a community to default to majority culture norms. In fact, studies have shown that churches 
if they're not actually learning to process a self-awareness of the cultural influences in their community, if they are at majority white, even multicultural churches will always be culturally white. That will be the default because you're operating not even aware that that's the artifacts, the assumptions, the behaviors that you're bringing into the community and establishing as normal and acceptable. And lastly, we will exclude and alienate others even when we think we are being welcoming. When we're sincere and saying, hey, no, we want you to be here. We want to be a mix of people. Of course we accept differences, and yet the way in which the community operates is deeply, thickly of a certain culture. Again, oftentimes, usually the majority culture in a way that excludes or makes it hard for people to feel like they belong. And so even despite the sincerity of your intentions, you're alienating people and even hurting them. Who do you see yourselves to be? See, this is surprising, isn't it? Most of the times we assume the first step in cross-cultural growth is learning about someone else's culture. Let me go read about it, study about it, Google it. Or the first thing I need to do is to initiate a new relationship with someone different from me. Hey, let's be friends. Here's what we're proposing to you. The first step, in fact, is to see yourself. The first step, in fact, is to learn how you embody a culture, how it shapes you, and what you bring to the table of cross-cultural community. We need to finish up quickly, so let me give you the third and final lesson here. Not only you're glowing, not only you're ethnic, but thirdly, finally, we're better together. Now, if you could please excuse the cliche, what I'm trying to simply point out here is that God's intent is to draw us into a worldwide, mixed, image-bearing family that's powerfully bonded together by his love. Earlier, we talked about the, the idea of the image of God maybe being well exemplified by the picture of a, a prism, a little piece of glass. But listen, here's the truth. The way that God has made us with differences, we're all slightly different kinds of pieces of glass, prisms. And so I have in my bag here, not just the classic prism, I have another piece of glass here. Oh, here, here, here's a, a cube-shaped one here, right? Th this re represents some of you, right? A little bit different. And here's another one, a, a, a pyramid-shaped uh, piece of glass, prism, right? Triangular in form. And, and another one here. Uh, what do you call this? Many sides, round, but, but shaven all around with 10, 20 different sides, a different kind of, of piece of glass. And, and, and here's a round sphere. And I'm not going to put this one down. It's going to roll away and we're going to be in trouble here. So all these different pieces of glass and every single one of them 
And if you can imagine them tinted differently, colored differently, shaped differently, bending light in different ways. Some of them might be really good with the greens. Other ones are even better with the reds. Some might really display the beauty of the yellows. All the differently shaped and colored prisms showing the vast array of the color of God's light. So God invites us then to be in community, cross-cultural community, mixed community. Why? Because when we come together, we can see across from each other different shades of the light that we otherwise might not have seen. Because where I'm from and who I am, I'm really good at seeing the reds of God's light. But you, brother, you're really good. Your people, your culture is really good at bringing out the greens. Oh, I, I need to see that part of God. And, and you over there, you, 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 you do a wonderful job of showing the beauty of the yellows. We need more of these refracted pieces of light. We need more of these differently shaped pieces of glass. Why? Because we need to be able to see more of the manifold beauty, the infinite range of possibilities of the glory of God's love. And the only way that we can see that is by gathering around as many pieces of differently shaped pieces of glass so that we can see all the colors of God's beauty. Don't you want to see that? Don't you want to see God? Which is precisely what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. Jews and Gentiles and a mixed company of people gathered in the church. Why? So that together with all the saints, you can see how high and how wide and deep and long is the love of God in Christ. Because the only way you can see a love that big, that multifaceted, is with every possible kind of prism that God has placed in this world. But I want to close by telling you another way in which it's important for us to understand ourselves as differently shaped and colored pieces of glass, prisms. And it's hinted here in verse 26. God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And you say, us... Our, you know, God in plural form, well, for generations, Christians have wondered, is this the Bible's reference to God's nature as a trinity? God, who's one God in three persons. That means God is himself unity in diversity. And so when we image God, when we show God and reflect God in this world, we need to be reflecting a kind of unity in diversity, a personal embodiment of this God. So we don't image God alone. We image him as the totality of God's people. Dutch theologian Herman Bovink puts it this way, the image of God is much too rich for it to be fully realized in a single human being, however richly gifted that human being may be. It can only be somewhat unfolded in its depths and riches in a humanity counting billions of members. Only humanity in its entirety as one complete organism summed up under a single head, Jesus, spread out over the whole earth. Only it is the fully finished image, the most telling and striking likeness of God. So, 
How big is your God? How beautiful is your God? How wondrous is his unity in diversity? The more you see of him, the more you will be convinced that one prism isn't enough. Ten prisms aren't enough. A thousand aren't enough. We need every possible kind of image to fully display all that God has revealed himself to be for all the world to appreciate, praise, and to behold, and love, and adore. In other words, for the Christian, the final reason that we ought to pursue cross-cultural community is that the world would see the glory of God. I know it's hard. I know it can be really, really hard. And there are wonderful benefits for you and me in this. Like I said, there are things of God and the gospel that you will not see unless you are in mixed company. The Bible tells us so. But even more than the benefits it affords us personally, the ultimate reason why God calls us into cross-cultural community is that the world would see the fullness of the multicolored glory of God. That is our calling. And it ain't easy because we're broken pieces of glass. It's why we need Jesus. Jesus, who the Bible calls the perfect image of God. It's in him that we find true healing. It's in him that we find true connection and true belonging. It's in him that he smooths out our rough edges so that we can actually connect and be one together. All these sharp-edged pieces of broken glass that we are. We wonder why it hurts so much when we're thrown in the bag of community together. Well, Jesus comes to heal us, redeem us, and to give us new life. This is God's design for be us to be together, for us to be one. This is how things ought to be. Will it happen? The answer is yes. Heaven promises it so, Remember Revelation chapter 7, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This vision, this goal, this design is going to come to fruition. You don't need to worry or fret. And as we head towards this vision, little by little, giving glimpses to one another and before the world, we take little steps, first steps towards cross-cultural community. First steps that might be for you today, learning to see God and his purposes, learning to see ourselves and how God has made us and placed us in this world. Don't you want to learn? Don't you want to grow together? In Jesus' name, by God's grace, we can. Let's pray. We're asking God that you would help us because we do need your help. We pray that you would have mercy upon us and that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us love, that you would give us faith and hope, that you would give us a commitment to learn to see ourselves as we really are, as part of our process of relating to one another and learning to love in cross-cultural community. We commit ourselves to you and we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.